Welcome to the River Life Podcast. As you listen, we pray that you will encounter Jesus and allow His words to wash you anew. May He reveal more of who He is to your heart. Here's the message for this week. Good morning. Uh, So if you've been following along, uh, we have been working our way through a series anchored in the first part of the book of Acts. If you've been away on holiday, never fear. Today, by way of a sermon introduction, uh, I decided I would offer you all a recap, a highlight reel of sorts of what has happened so far. If you watch any series on Netflix, this is the part where that little box appears at the corner that says skip recap. My request is do not click skip recap today. Track with me. Don't check your WhatsApp. Don't check Facebook or Instagram right now. We got to be ready because the highlight reel will go very quickly. Are you guys ready? All right, let's go. So a lot has happened for the early church in the past few weeks. First, Jesus, their rabbi, their leader, the man for whom they left comforts, careers, and clan, the man upon whom all their hopes of salvation had rested and their dreams of deliverance had hinged, the man for whom they gave up everything to follow had just been given up to the most gruesome, most cruel, most unjust public execution. And in the shadow of the devastation of the crucifixion, all who followed him disavowed him. All who were associated with him dispersed from him. But, plot twist. Despair and despondency were suddenly rolled away on the third day when rumors first delivered by a few women and then corroborated by other witnesses, proved to be true that Jesus had indeed been resurrected. He is alive. And not only did he come back from the dead, he appeared to two disciples on a dusty road to Emmaus. Gate crashed, a literal closed-door meeting of his disciples. Reconciled with Peter, who had denied Convinced Thomas, who had doubted, showed himself to 500 people at once, conducted a 40-day, once-in-a-lifetime exclusive Bible study about himself, and then still had time to join the boys fishing and cook them fried fish for breakfast on the beach. After all that, he commanded them to make disciples of all nations, the same nations that he had previously said would hate them, Deliver them up to persecution and kill them. And then after promising them, he would be with them to the end of the age. In the most dramatic fashion that would require a lot of money pumped into special effects. If this was actually a movie, he helicopters up into the clouds. Disappears from their sight. And then suddenly angels appear and say, chop, chop, curry, pop. Jesus is coming back the same way you saw him go. Less than two weeks later, while they were waiting, a mighty rushing wind fills the room. Tongues of fire appear and the promise of the Father comes. The first simultaneously translated conference takes place as everyone speaks in different languages, a reversal of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And then Peter gets up and preaches his first 
sermon, and 3,000 people become followers of Jesus. And just like that, the church is born with the equivalent of three full capacity services at River Life. That's 1,000 people times three, just in case you didn't get that. Small groups began to meet daily, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, praying together, eating together as they remembered Jesus and proclaiming his death until he comes and having all things in common. Generosity abounded and there was no lack. And as more and more were added daily to their number, we finally arrive at last week's episode, I mean sermon, where the first major miracle had just taken place, a cripple for 40 years, was miraculously and instantly healed. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 5 of our series, The Prevailing Church. And in today's episode, we will witness the early church's first encounter with persecution and opposition, their first missionary conference, and their first ever recorded prayer. Are you ready? Let's read today's text together. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander. If I mention your name, your friends have to buy you boba tea. And all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. 
When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. We live in an incredible time for learning. At our fingertips, we literally have access to look up anything we could possibly think of. Everything from solar systems, to salsa dancing, to sleep training. Sometime last year, when I was down with COVID and isolated for a week, after the first couple of days where I felt like death, I got better, but still had to wait for that T line to magically disappear. So instead of just binge-watching TV shows, I thought to myself, now would be an amazing time to learn a new skill. So I asked my wife to kindly get a sketch pad and some pencils for me. We ordered them on Shopee. I was going to learn how to sketch. How hard could it be, right? So I did what every good millennial or younger person would do when you want to learn something. I YouTubed it. I learned about hatching and cross-hatching, stippling and shading, light and shadows. Everything seemed so easy and I was convinced my dormant inner Leonardo da Vinci was about to emerge. The videos recommended starting with basic shapes and basic blocks to get a sense of how to shade your drawing. But that was too elementary for me. After all, I'd watched at least three episodes of videos on sketching. So I went straight to the human form. I decided I would sketch a picture of my beloved son, Levi. So I found a cute photo of Levi and went at it, hatching and cross-hatching my way to my debut artistic masterpiece. Would you like to see it? Needless to say, I quickly realized that a Leonardo da Vinci I was not. (laughs) And as quickly I realized that watching a video or accessing information or reading about a subject is not the same as learning and experiencing how to do something. You can remove that horrible... Levi looks great, but the picture not so much. (laughs) It's the same with the Lord. It's the same with the Lord. We don't learn about Him just by watching sermons on YouTube. And when he teaches us things, we don't learn just by reading books about it. How many times have you asked the Lord something like, God, teach me how to love. 
And suddenly that colleague that nobody wants to sit with and everybody gets annoyed at shows up to hang out with you. Or God, teach me how to be still before you. And suddenly your household appliances started breaking down, your car doesn't start, and appointments get forgotten and deadlines get missed. Or that other scary, scary prayer. God, teach me how to be patient. And suddenly you're in an eight-hour-long queue at the JB Immigration In Acts chapter 4, we see the Holy Spirit raising up a bold and courageous church. But it's not through workshops or articles on how to be bold. He's going to use the situation that they find themselves in, the threats, intimidation, and persecution that start to arise as the church begins to grow, to form boldness in them. And as we follow their journey through this chapter, we will break down today's sermon into three parts. Part one, the context of boldness. Part two, the characteristics of boldness. And part three, the call to boldness. Part one, the context of boldness. This is what is happening. Revival is breaking out. A man who had been crippled for 40 years just got miraculously and instantly healed. Chen Xing talked about it last week. And following that healing... And Peter's second sermon, the church increases in size from 3,000 people on Pentecost to 5,000 men. Not bad for a second-time preacher, right? If you factor in women and children, that's easily upwards of 10,000 people. Jerusalem's population back then was estimated to be between 25 to 85,000 people. So 10,000 people deciding to follow Jesus overnight is a big deal. But then in the midst of the explosion of growth, they experienced their first whiff of persecution. This isn't even, this isn't even the full-blown persecution unto martyrdom that they will experience shortly after. Spoiler alert. But in the midst of increasing growth in the church, threats of persecution begin to escalate. Second century Christian thinker and apologist Tertullian famously said, the blood of the martyrs is a seed for the church. Maybe at this point you're thinking, whoa, whoa, Josh, that escalated quickly. How do we go up from queuing up at JB Immigration to martyrdom? (laughs) My friends, I'm not making this up. Remember the Great Commission? Right before Jesus takes up on a cloud, he says to his disciples, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The word witnesses in the Greek is martus. And it's obvious from looking at that word what the connection is. The very word for witnesses is the same word from which we get the word martyr. Meaning those who are after his example have proved the strength and genuineness of their faith in Christ by undergoing a violent death. This may be a jarring revelation to the church today. Because for many of us, witnessing simply means handing someone a track or inserting the word Jesus into our conversations or inviting them to an Easter service or Alpha. Nothing wrong with these things, of course. But that's not what being a witness is biblically. This would not have surprised the early church, though. When Jesus told his disciples, 
And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. It was in the context of the preceding verses where he says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So when Jesus said to them, Go make disciples of all nations, they knew exactly what they were getting themselves into. See, there seems to be a connection between trials, persecution, and martyrdom and the harvest. Even God had to sow his son to reap the world. We see this pattern carrying out throughout history. Martin Luther Luther once said, The clearer the church recognizes Christ and testifies of him, the more certainly it will encounter the contradiction, the confrontation, and the hatred of the Antichrist. But maybe you're saying this morning, wait, Josh, correlation doesn't prove causation. And you're right. It's not always the case that persecution causes the church to grow, but there is a definite correlation. Church growth and persecution go hand in hand, whether it's because persecution refines the church so that it produces growth both in quantity and quality, or whether it's because the church is increasing in nations without religious freedom, so therefore persecution increases. Research last year, last year shows that 360 million Christians around the world live with high levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith. It has been said that persecution is a storm that is permitted to scatter the seed of the word and disperse the sower and reaper over many fields. It is God's way of extending his kingdom. We see this in the time of the book of Acts and we see it happening today. But Josh, why is it important for the church to be in tune with this issue of persecution? I'm glad you asked. Number one, because if our eyes aren't open to this present and growing reality, we will not have a right and robust theology of suffering in the face of persecution. Simply put, our theology will not sustain us through trials and tribulations. If our worldview as a believer has no room for persecution, we will not know what to do when persecution hits. And the result will become a people that wants to inherit the glory without embracing the cross. Who gains the world but loses our soul. A people who values the temporary comforts of the culture, of the vapor of a life, more than the promise of eternal glory in the ages to come. So friends, whatever persecution looks like, whether it looks like discrimination at the workplace by colleagues, missing out on promotions or lunch invites, being snubbed or criticized or excluded from gatherings, or whether it looks like persecution unto death, we can take comfort, yes, comfort, in what the Apostle Paul, who went from persecutor to persecuted, said to Timothy. And he said, all, 
not some, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So the first reason to be aware of the context of persecution is this, so that we cultivate a healthy and biblical perspective on suffering. The second reason is this. It's so that we will not become numb and disconnected from the body of Christ that is suffering and being persecuted. Let's get real, right? When was the last time we spared a thought for the 5,261 Christians killed worldwide last year for their faith? When was the last time we thought about Korea, not in the context of KBBQ, BTS, and Blackpink, our next holiday destination, but in the context of our brothers and sisters just north of that border where a new anti-reactionary thought law prohibits anyone from even possessing a Bible and where one could be killed on the spot simply for being a Christian. Or closer to home, when was the last time our hearts were gripped for Myanmar? It's more than the country where your helper who cooks and cleans your house comes from. It's where today, more and more Christians are becoming refugees in their hometowns. Denied access for, to food and to healthcare. It's where today government forces attack Christian villages and churches. Or even closer to home. When was the last time we prayed for the nation for which we're willing to suffer eight-hour-long queues to enjoy bakute, inexpensive massages and groceries that are three times cheaper? Will we be willing to suffer along with our Malaysian brothers and sisters, where in recent years at least one pastor has been abducted and continues to be missing until today, where millions are prohibited from turning to Jesus for fear of excommunication, persecution, and death? Have we become so disconnected from the essence of being a witness, martus, that we are numb to the reality that all around the world, our family is being led like sheep to the slaughter? In 2019, I had the privilege of leading a team of leaders from Malaysia, Singapore, Korea, and the UK to minister at a house of prayer in Oita, Japan. It was a powerful two-week school where young people from Japan and the nations caught the heart of the house of prayer and grew in their understanding of intimacy with Jesus and the urgency of the end times. And in the middle of that school, we had a rest day. And our host brought us to this quaint little Japanese town nestled in the foothills of Mount Yufu, where I had the best matcha mochi in my life. On the way home, he asked us, hey, do you want to visit the Martyr's Memorial? It's on the way back. So I thought we'd be going to this museum, but we pulled onto a dirt road and we started walking along a path by the side of a hill overlooking a beautiful valley. I thought we were headed to a museum, but this definitely did not look like a museum. We climbed up a flight of stairs and found ourselves standing in the middle of a shady cemetery. The Martyr's Memorial. This was definitely not how I thought we would be spending our afternoon off at a cemetery. But in life, 
There is a reverence demanded when standing in the presence of people of honor. It suddenly occurred to me that we were surrounded by a company of men and women who not only deserved respect, but who, like Stephen in the Bible, probably saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God upon completion of their earthly race. My heart began to pound quickly. And immediately my mind went to Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, where it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. My friends, right now in heaven, there is an altar under which the souls of martyrs through the ages are crying out to the Lord for Him to make the wrong things right, to bring true justice, that their deaths on the earth would not have been in vain. I think about how all the way back in Genesis chapter 4, after Cain had killed his brother Abel, the Lord says to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. I think about Psalm 116 that says, precious in the eyes of the Lord are the death of his saints. And I wonder, what is the cry of the martyrs doing to the heart of God right now? And what should it do to ours? If martyrdom was common in the early church, I believe that the church in the end times will have its fair share of intense persecution and yes, even martyrdom. While not every believer is appointed to undergo a violent death, we are all called to die daily. The standard after which we are to model our witness is Jesus, the faithful witness who was steady in his witness, even unto death. We believe and contend for the church in the end times to come into an even greater glory and a greater maturity than the early church in the book of Acts. But we also believe that great outpourings will come in the context of great persecutions. The Bible predicts it. History supports it. The great outpouring at Pentecost in the Bible, was followed by widespread persecution under Nero's reign. The great revival in Wales and Azusa Street at the turn of the century were followed by World War I. The great revival in Pyongyang was followed by the Korean War. If revival and outpouring are an expression of God's mercy for as many as possible to be saved, then the biblical pattern is that God will always show mercy before He releases judgment. And this is why the example of the early church is not just important for us today, but it's a pattern set forth for us that will be so critical in the seasons that are to come. The church will be a bold witness. Amen? The church will be a bold witness. Amen? but it will be in the context of persecution and suffering unto the glory of God. Part two, the characteristics of boldness. 
Let's go back in time to the first recorded persecution of the early church. And to help us, here is a picture of what the scene we're about to read uh, in Acts chapter 4, verse 3 to 7 would have looked like. Verse 3, And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Uh, you, can keep, you can keep that uh, picture there. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, or in the center, they inquired by what power or by what name did you do this? So imagine with me right now. Seventy men that formed the council known as the Sanhedrin, or in terms that we would understand today, they were like the Supreme Court. And they were seated in a semicircle, you see that? In a hall called the Hall of Hewn Stones. This semicircle comprised the who's who of the most prominent and powerful religious leaders in Israel. The rulers were the Sadducees or the chief priests. The elders were the family heads and heads of tribes. And the scribes were all Pharisees and they were experts in the law. These were the people who tried the most serious offenses and pronounced the severest penalties, including death by stoning. And these were the exact same people who only weeks earlier had unjustly condemned Jesus to death. Now imagine with me, Peter, John, and the healed crippled man in the middle of this hall, surrounded by 70 of the most influential men in the city, gathered for one purpose and one purpose only, to accuse them. Talk about the intimidating power play. How many of you want to be standing in the middle of that circle right now? But it's precisely here that we are introduced to the characteristics of biblical boldness. Verse 13 says, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. When they saw the boldness of Peter. Peter. Do you guys remember Peter? The guy who, when Jesus was explaining that he had to die and be raised, dared to rebuke Jesus and then got told, get behind me, Satan. The guy who got to witness the transfiguration. But then he opens his mouth to speak and becomes probably the only human being in history to be told audibly by the Father in heaven through a voice in the cloud, stop talking and listen to my son. The guy who vowed in arrogance never to leave Jesus, even if everyone else does. I will not leave you, my Lord. But who in the faint flickering light of a courtyard fire was intimidated by a servant girl and ended up denying his Lord three times. That Peter. But that Peter, now filled with the Holy Spirit, stands... Not before a servant girl in the shadows, but with a miraculously healed cripple in full view 
of the angry Jewish leaders who sentenced Jesus to death and fully identifies with his Lord. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. It is that Peter, now filled with the Holy Spirit, who speaks in boldness and truth, For the Holy Spirit is both boldness and truth. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And it is that Peter, now filled with the Holy Spirit, once scared at the very thought of death when Jesus spoke of it, who says in his letters to the scattered believers, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When they saw the boldness of that Peter, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. This is important to note, my friends, because we live in a day and age where we recognize people from social media apps on our phones. In our day of celebrity obsession, we sometimes recognize the faces of people like Taylor Swift or Chris Martin more familiarly than our friends and our colleagues. But in that day, before all of this technology and among Jewish leaders who didn't associate with the common folk, it would surprise us to realize that perhaps those leaders weren't as familiar with what Jesus looked like, let alone Peter or John. We think, we think of Jesus, Peter, and John as we would celebrities. I mean, AI can even recreate their faces, right? But in a crowd of thousands, without cameras and lights and large screens, how could someone see clearly their faces? Could this even be Why in the dim light of night, Judas had to offer a kiss to identify Jesus? But when they saw their boldness, despite their lack of theological training, the entire council recognized this, that Peter and John had been with Jesus. My friends, do people recognize us as having been with Jesus because of our bold witness? Or is it because of the Jesus fish sticker on the back of our car? The word boldness in the Greek is parisia and carries the meaning of to tell it all, not holding anything back. And in response to their boldness, the Sanhedrin issued the very first gag order on the early church, commanding Peter and John not to speak about Jesus, not to tell it all at all. My friends, what would your response be if you were commanded not to speak of Jesus in your workplace or in your school? Or if you were ordered to only speak of Jesus to certain people and not to others? 
Verse 19 says, Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But for us, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. My friends, perhaps the question that we need to answer before deciding what we would do is this. If the disciples could not but speak of what they had seen and heard, then what have we seen? What have we heard? We can only testify of what we've witnessed. We can only reveal what we behold. Perhaps the only way that the church in the last days will be the faithful witness that proclaims the gospel of the kingdom to the ends of the earth is by rediscovering what it truly means to behold Jesus intimately and as tangibly as the disciples did. Perhaps then we could also say we cannot but speak of what we have beheld. My friends, if the context of boldness is persecution and suffering, then these are the characteristics of boldness that we see. Number one, boldness comes from the Holy Spirit. We see this evidence in Peter's transformation from denier to proclaimer. And this is something I pray we will begin to see more and more in the days to come. The same Holy Spirit that filled Peter and John is the same Holy Spirit that wants to fill you and me. Biblical boldness is not something we drum up or work up or muster up in our own strength. It is something we receive as the Holy Spirit fills us. Number two, boldness comes through obedience. It was as the disciples obeyed Jesus' command in Acts 1.8 to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to ends of the earth that they were filled with all boldness to speak. See, we don't get boldness preemptively. We don't get to stock up on boldness now for future use. It is not toilet paper. It's like those, you know, NTUC vouchers where you're about to check out, then you have to scan it and you have to use it immediately. That's what boldness is like. Sometimes we get so worried thinking, wow, I don't know if I will be able to withstand suffering or persecution. What if they attack my family? What if I can't defend my faith? What if I don't know what to say or do? What if I deny Jesus? I don't know if you've thought about those things. I have, I know. But my friends, I'm convinced that the key is obedience. It is through obedience that the disciples will fill with the Holy Spirit and boldness. In fact, in Luke chapter 12, verse 11, it says, Jesus told them, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And finally, part three, the call to boldness. So what did the disciples do then? What can we take away today from their example as we posture our hearts towards boldness from the Holy Spirit and through obedience today? Let's look at verse 23. It says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. The first thing that Peter and John did when they were released was to go to their friends, their communities, 
the ones who had also laid down their lives to follow Jesus. This was their spiritual community. This was the church responding to the charge in Hebrews that says, Do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but exhort one another even more as you see the day approaching. And as they assembled, they reported what had been said to them. This was the first missionary conference and the first missionary report of the early church. But what's amazing to me, my friends, is this, that they didn't try to package it in a certain way or sugarcoat the news as negative and intimidating as it sounded. They didn't try to make things look easier, more seeker-friendly, more manageable, so that more people would join their church or sign up for the mission trips. They just told it all. And then their community responded. And we get a picture of how boldness manifests, not just upon an individual, but upon a community. River life, what if boldness manifests upon us as a community? It's when they came into alignment, not with fear or intimidation or the spirit of the age or the culture of the day, but they came into alignment with the Holy Spirit. And verse 24 says, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. When they heard of the impending persecution, when they heard of the intimidation of the authorities, they came together and they prayed as one. This is the first recorded prayer of the early church. And I believe it was recorded as a gift from the early church to the church through the ages, and even to the church at the end of the age today. So let's look at what they prayed. It's a short prayer that doesn't take more than 90 seconds to pray, but I believe it will serve as a blueprint for the praying church in the days to come. What did they pray? Verse 24, I'm just going to read this to you. But as I read this, would you pray this? Would you join your spirit with the prayer of the early church that's been prayed through the ages till today? It said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage? Why did the people's plot invade? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal, that signs and wonders will be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. The first thing they did together as a community... We're not quite there yet. <laughs> the first thing they did together, but thanks for being here. We, we'll, we'll get there really soon. The first thing they did together as a community was to remind themselves, take note of this, they reminded themselves of the absolute sovereignty of God. That phrase, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, was lifted right out of the book of Exodus. And it references the creation account in Genesis. And throughout scripture, this phrase 
was often used in prayers whenever people were going to ask God to move in power. Why? Imagine what it would do to their hearts. When confronted with the Sanhedrin, the highest religious powers in the land, that they were able to appeal to a power far greater than theirs, the one who created everything. And that's one of the most powerful things about starting our prayers, not with petitions, but with praise. It reminds our hearts that are so prone to forget who God is and what He has done before. The second thing that they prayed as a community was Scripture. They prayed Psalm chapter 2, which is a messianic psalm that points to Jesus and what He will do both in the first and second coming. They connected a psalm that had been written a thousand years before to a situation they were facing in the present. The psalm said, why did the Gentiles rage? The Gentiles were raging. Why do the peoples plot in vain? The peoples of Israel were scheming to kill Jesus. The kings of the earth, Herod and Pontius Pilate, the rulers, the Sanhedrin, they were gathered together against Jesus. My friends, this is so important to learn in our prayer lives and to apply. Why? Because that's when we pray through Psalms like Psalm 2, as much as it was partially fulfilled, in the book of Acts, there's coming a day. And if you read the rest of Psalm chapter 2, you'll see what it is. That the nations of the earth will rage against Jesus when He returns. And in that day, the response of the early church must become the response of the end time church. What was their response? If you were facing threats of imminent persecution and suffering. And if you could stand before the creator of heaven and earth, the sovereign God, how many of us would immediately pray, Lord, look at their threats. Deliver us. Protect us. Save us. Or something to that effect. I think that would probably be my first response, to be honest. But here's what the early church prayed. They said, look upon their threats, God. Not because they were about to ask for deliverance, but because, remember, they knew He was sovereign. There was nothing that could happen to them that He did not have control over or permitted. And because He is sovereign and good and all-powerful and all-knowing, they could simply trust in His character, in His nature, and in His decision. And so instead, they continued, Grant to your servants. They asked that God would grant, that He would give to them this gift. To whom? To His servants. Some versions translate this as bond servants or slaves. And the fact that they even prayed this way is stunning because they were baby believers. They were a few months old a few months old in their faith, without years and years of Bible study and sermons and theological training, without Pastor Ernie doing series and all these different people teaching them. They had a few months and they said this, baby believers would give themselves completely to the cause of Christ, saying, not my will, God, but yours. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word 
with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Not that he would deliver them. Not that he would remove their threats. Not for their safety, not for their comfort, not for their convenience. But simply this, that they would have the ability to be obedient to what Jesus told them to do. That they would continue to speak his word with all boldness. Not only were they not asking God for protection, but quite the opposite. They were asking, what they were asking for was surely going to provoke even greater persecution. But they were so caught up with God's glory and desires, not their personal comforts and wants, that it didn't matter to them. They needed to speak the word. Not with some boldness, but with all boldness. All meaning all that is needed to accomplish the purpose and all that they were designed by God to have. And then they prayed this thing. They prayed, God, stretch forth your hand to heal for signs and wonders to be done. Why? So we can post about it so that we can be a church that's known for signs and wonders? No. Because signs and wonders coupled with speaking with boldness functioned as attestation by God. Meaning God was attesting to the word and to the work of Jesus. Signs and wonders weren't ends in themselves. But it was God bearing witness to the preaching of the word by giving signs and wonders. So in summary, this is how they prayed. Number one, they prayed, God, you are absolutely sovereign. You are absolutely sovereign. Nothing happens that is out of your control. Nothing happens that you don't know about. You are absolutely sovereign. And number two, because you're absolutely sovereign, we don't ask, remove these threats or, or save us or preserve us, but we ask God, give us boldness. Because you are watching us. Give us boldness to continue to speak your word. And my friends, do you know what's the result of that prayer? Verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. It wasn't a metaphorical shaking. It was like, whoa, we had shaking. There was a literal earthquake. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God answered with a physical sign. We see this type of thing happening through the Bible. In the Old Testament, on Mount Sinai, when God drew near, He shook the mountain. In Isaiah chapter 6, in the temple, the temple shook at the presence of God. And we will see it later in the book of Acts. When Paul and Silas were in prison, what happens? There's a shaking and they're actually released. I'm not saying that every time we pray, and we'll pray later on, we're not going to have an earthquake, I hope. <laughs> but I believe with all my heart that as the end time church arises and begins to pray what the early church prayed, the Lord will respond in the same way. He will give us signs. It's what Joel prophesied and what Peter preached on Pentecost. And He will fill us all with the Holy Spirit so that we continue to speak the word with boldness even to the ends of the earth so that the end will come. So that He will have everything He desires in the nations and in Jerusalem. Friends, this was the holy audacity of the early church. 
A church faced with mounting pressures and persecution, but filled with the Holy Spirit to speak in obedience and boldness the Word of God with power, with signs and wonders. What if we, the church, at the end of the age, would dare to believe for God to do the same thing that He did then and even more? And what if we would embrace that same call to boldness and courage? A few weeks ago, the Tuesday after we were all anointed with oil on Pentecost Sunday, the staff team went on a prayer walk in the Tempanis North Estate. Armed with our bottles of water, our Bibles, our snacks, because it was a prayer walk, not a prayer and fast, we began interceding for the neighborhood and its residents, for the families that will be moving in, for blessing, for his presence, for Waitia and Ivy, for Dan and Tammy and Esther, for different river lifers who are living there, and most definitely for a harvest. For as we walked, I was reminded again of how the Lord over the past few years has been speaking to us as a church. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. What if the new thing that the Lord is doing requires a new response? What if the new response looked like going out from the comforts of the air-conditioned sanctuary and into the wilderness of the not-yet-completed neighborhoods of Tampanese North so that the river of life, so that river life would flow in these desert places? And what if that means that the task ahead would sooner or later bring with it intimidation or persecution? And what if that is why He's wanting to fill us anew with His Spirit, that we will be a church that continues to speak the Word of God with all boldness. See, the book we're studying today, it's, not, it's called the Acts of the Apostles, but really it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because it is all about the Holy Spirit. And it's all about what the Holy Spirit is doing in the church today, in between Jesus' ascension and His second coming. Today is not about tips on how to be bold as a Christian, or how to share your faith boldly with your neighbors in three steps. Today, it's about renewing our relationship with the Holy Spirit, and standing with Him as we look at the days to come, at the harvest that is ready at the price that we will have to pay so that the Lamb receives the reward of His suffering river life. Do you know how much He has invested into this church? Do you know the way that He's kept you through the years of shaking that you might be here? Do you know the way that He's drawn many of you back to this house? We don't have much to offer, but the Lord is here. He is looking upon us and He's saying, I want something to come forth. I am doing a new thing. But where is the church that would respond to Him this morning and say, you are sovereign God. You saw everything in our history 
You see everything in our present and you know what's going to come. And in that place, we can trust you completely with our leaders. We can trust you completely with our sermon series. We can trust you completely with our everything that we, we sit and we are consumers and we criticize. But we can trust you in that because all he's looking for is the people who would say to him today, Sovereign God, look upon their threats. But grant me today boldness to continue to speak your word. That my voice won't be silenced by the comfort of the culture. My voice won't be silenced by by anything that I feel, by anything that I'm disgruntled over. But I will be faithful to the end to speak your word. And as we look at what is ahead, the invitation that I feel the Lord giving to us today is will we pray the same prayer that the early church prayed. Would you stand and join me as we pray this, as we close today's sermon? You know, it's a crazy thing. I, I recently was listening to a sermon. Uh, and it talked about how, you know, when we, when we pray, we kneel. But that was actually what happened in the Greek culture, in the Roman culture. That actually the Jewish people, when they ministered to the Lord, they would stand and lift their hands. That's what the priests would do. And so as I lead us in prayer, I want to invite you, River Life, would you stand as priests before the Lord? Would you stand and lift your hands to the Lord? And we're going to pray this prayer, not word for word, but in the same spirit that the early church prayed. That no matter what the days ahead may bring, that we would be committed to obedience to the Lord, to His commission to us, that what He gave to us thousands of years ago, that He is still waiting for the completion of. God, I'm asking here in River Life, God, that we would say yes to You. God, we don't want to be a consumer church. God, we don't want to be a people that is so satisfied with the comforts of our life when the Son of Man has not received His full reward. God, we don't want to build our home when Jesus, you're waiting to make your home with us. And so, Lord, sovereign God, the one who created the heavens and the earth and the sea, that's everything in them. God, we know that there is coming a day that what David prophesied that the nations would rage. The kings of the earth would plot against you. But God, we know the rest of that psalm. We know that you're raising up sons and daughters who would ask you for their inheritance. Jesus is asking you for his inheritance. And we, your sons and your daughters, we're asking for that inheritance. Give us the nations, God. God. 
Give us the nations as an inheritance, Lord. Do whatever it takes, God. We're asking for Singapore. We're asking. It's too small a thing to ask for just Tampines North, God. We're asking for Singapore. We're asking for this region. We're asking for Korea. We're asking for Myanmar. We're asking for Malaysia, God. We're asking for the ones who are suffering right now. Not that you would stop suffering, but grant them boldness, God. Grant them boldness to speak your word. Grant us boldness to speak your word, God. And God, we ask, look upon the threats. Look upon the persecution that's coming and already is here. Look upon the intimidation that we will feel as a bride that's committed to live godly before you. You said all who want to live godly will suffer persecution. And so as we look ahead and we see persecution, God, we stand before a sovereign God. We know all that happens is permitted by you. And so we ask you today, not that you save the vapor of life that we have in this side, but that we would stand burning with you in the ages to come. That we would not gain the world, but lose our soul. That in the day that we see you, we would not be ashamed because of the way we lived on this side of eternity. But as we confess you before God, you will confess us before men. And so God, I'm asking today, look upon the threats. Look upon what is coming. And grant to river life. Grant to your beloved. Grant to this church. God, boldness to continue to speak your word. That when darkness comes in, God, that we would be light. That when the wave of persecution from the culture arises, God, a strong church that learns the place of weakness and leaning upon you emerges from the wilderness. God, you are doing a new thing. We want to be part of that new thing. But God, we need you to fill us. God, we ask, stretch forth your hand to heal. That signs and wonders will be done in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. God, not so that we just have healings. No, but that the preaching of your word will be accompanied by a demonstration of your power, God. Father, every believer, not just the leaders. I'm asking for the young people to begin to see signs and wonders break out. I'm asking for the old ones, God, to see healings take place as they pray. Father, as they bold, as they're bold, as they're bold, as they're bold to speak your word, God. Fill us, Holy Spirit, today as your people, as your church, God. God, you desire a dwelling place. You're coming soon. To grant to us, God. Give to us that gift that we would speak your word with all boldness. And we pray what the Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians 6 that utterance would be given to us, that we would boldly open our mouths to make known the mystery of the gospel 
for which we are ambassadors in chains. That's the kind of church you want from us, God. And that's the kind of church we want to be, Lord. So even as the worship team leads us, would you just respond to the Lord? He wants to fill every one of us. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word with boldness. So just lift your hands to the Lord. Thank you for listening to the River Life Podcast. We hope that you've encountered Jesus through the Word. If you'd like to connect with community or find out more about River Life Church, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or head on over to riverlife.org.sg. God bless and have a great week ahead.